Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am not Justin Burke, but I'm Chris the Chew Man Chew, and I'm here with our producer, Audra Ines. Hello. Hi, everyone. And our showrunner, Sam. Hey, I am also not Justin Burke. This is devastating, Chris. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> All right. So tonight we have Dr. Anik Hogan, who discusses complex care. But first, before we get into that, Sam, do you want to tell us what the show is about? Absolutely. So... We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Tonight, we have a wonderful conversation with our guest, Dr. Hogan, who is a complex care general pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP, and an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She has spent her career at CHOP dedicated to the care of medically complex patients, both in the inpatient and ambulatory settings. She is the medical director of the Inpatient Complex Care Service, the founder and medical director of the CHOP Compass Care Program, the medical director of care management, and also the medical director for the CHOP Home Care. She loves creating and improving systems for care of children with medical complexity, teaching about complex care and caring for these incredible children and their families. Today, she helps us make complex care a little less complex for us by providing her expertise on medical technology and overall approach to providing excellent care for this unique patient population. Let's get into it. Dr. Hogan, thank you so much for coming on our show. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. First, uh, so we're sort of an informal group, so I just want to ask today, uh, can we uh, call you by your first name? Please do so. Excellent. So before we get started, as we, you know, for our audience to sort of get to know you, do you mind, you know, giving us like a little summary of, you know, one or two sentences of who you are and um, so we have a better idea? Absolutely. So yeah, my name is Anique Hogan, and I am a complex care pediatrician here at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, and the University of Pennsylvania. I really think of myself first and foremost as a pediatrician. I focus on children with medical complexity, and I'm really interested in improving the care that we deliver to these children across the spectrum of care, from the hospital to the outpatient to the home setting. But I'm a general pediatrician by training, and I still practice as a primary care pediatrician as well. Not very much, but I do a little bit of primary care in addition to my complex care work. And beyond being a pediatrician, which is a big part of my identity, I'm also a mother of three, which is an entire other full-time job in and of itself. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Sam Roger, do you guys have questions? I have a question from the trainee perspective as I'm looking at my next step going into fellowship. I was wondering what is the best advice you have received as a learner throughout your career journey? So I have to say the best advice I have received actually didn't come from one of my mentors at work. Um, It actually came from my mother-in-law. And so my mother-in-law, who is a very, very wise woman and a philosopher by her training, she once told me when I was pretty early on in my professional life to pay attention to the things that only you can do. So she told me there's going to be a lot of things that you can do in this world and in this life for which you're going to be replaceable, sometimes easily replaceable, sometimes a little bit more difficult, but a lot of things where you're going to be replaceable. But to really focus on those things that only you can do or that you are uniquely suited to do. Um, I have taken that very, very seriously, personally, I think about this in the context of being a parent, and I am the only person who can be the mother to my children, so I take that role very, very seriously. But professionally, when I think about this, 
I really did try early on in my career to think about the things that would make me uniquely suited to try to pursue this work that I really wanted to do in complex care, particularly because I was so interested in the entire spectrum of these children's journey. And so I bring to that my background in being a hospitalist, in being an outpatient consultant, in being a primary care physician as well, and try to employ that in the work that I'm doing and how I care for my patients and their families. I think I've developed an understanding of what this journey is like, never the same as what the family's experience is, because I can't live that. But I really do try to think about what is it, what is it that I can uniquely bring to this work? That's fantastic advice. I appreciate you sharing it. I told you she is a wise woman. Here's to all the wise mother-in-laws out there. Yeah. I know. I was going to say there's three points. There's one, you know, doing the uh, the unique pieces. But number two, the fact of listening to your mother-in-law, which I think is also a large piece of advice that you wouldn't necessarily see coming for everybody here. So that's going to be that's going to be big with the audience or some people's mother-in-laws. Um, and not to make not to make levity of that, though, it's actually fantastic advice. Um, and then along the lines of what you were saying about complex care, I thought I could ask you, I'm going to go a little off script here. But what do you think got you if it's okay to ask, you know, what got you into complex care? How did you go from being a hospitalist or a primary care trained pediatrician to actually seeing patients mostly with complex medical needs? So towards the end of my training, I was really trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. And I found that I liked a lot of the different rotations that I was doing, but I was really, really drawn to very, very complicated issues and problems. I liked complex things. And so I got some great advice from wise senior physicians who were willing to just let me talk through what it was that I really liked doing, what medicine I liked practicing. And I found myself drawn to problems that didn't already have a solution. So I was really attracted to this population of children with medical complexity because they made me think. And the problems that they had were multifactorial. There was so many different variables to consider. But I was really also looking for a practice that would allow me to take care of patients when they were ill in the hospital where things are going pretty quickly, but also have the ability to have longitudinal relationships with patients and families because I can think better about these children when I can get to know them over time. And also because those relationships were really important to me in how I wanted to get fulfillment out of my career. Um, and so when I was starting out, I had exposure to inpatient complex care, but I saw that there was something missing in how we could take some of what we were doing in the hospital and really translate that to the outpatient setting. And so when I was applying for my job, I was applying at my own institution where I had done my training. And so I knew people there already, which was really helpful. And I was able to talk about some of the things that I wanted to do and ask if there would be opportunities for me to try to pursue that interest and try to build something that would be able to serve these patients where there was an unmet need. And fortunately, at a place like this, where there's a lot of resources, a tremendous amount of expertise, I was able to get the exposure that I needed to learn how to do this and have the resources around me to be able to take advantage of opportunities as they came along to build the program that I wanted to exist to serve these patients. Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, it's this, you know, for everyone out there who hasn't heard of complex care, you're about to find out, you can tell this is the perfect amalgam between both doing inpatient medicine with a sense of continuity too, to bring to the outpatient world, which not all of us can do as our job. So, um, so I can see how that has a ton of value. Um, so I, I do have one follow up question. So if someone does listen to this episode and they've never heard of complex care before and they're like, this is like totally for me, like what are the different pathways? Do they have to eke this out for themselves and figure out what's out there or are there different ways in which people can become a complex care physician? There are definitely different ways to be able to enter into this path in medicine. There are complex care training programs that 
have been developed and are uh, continuing to be developed um, at pediatric programs across the country. But there are also ways that you can enter into this practice really by self-selection that this is a population with whom you would like to work. And so we are going to talk a little bit more about some of the different types of complex care programs that exist. But you can enter into the field of complex care as a hospitalist. You can enter into this field as a primary care doctor. You can enter into this field as an outpatient consultant or some combination thereof. Awesome. I mean, that's that's the perfect segue to uh, to talking about complex care. So, um, so Audra, do you want to uh, take it away from it? with a case from Cashlack? Sure, I'm happy to. So we have a case today of Shiley. She is a 14-year-old girl, former 25-week gestational age infant with global developmental delay, trach vent dependent for chronic lung disease and pulmonary hypertension with G-tube for feeding difficulties, hydrocephalus status post VP shunt, spina bifida with neurogenic bladder requiring chronic intermittent cath, complicated by also a history of multi-drug resistant UTIs, vision impairment, and cerebral palsy with baclofen pump for spasticity. She's here in clinic today with her mother and home care nurse for an urgent visit. And they state, I think Shiley has a cold or something. She is just not acting like her usual self. So there's a lot to unpack in this case, but as per the segue, I think a good starting place will just be to define what complex care is as a specialty. When I think about complex care, it's really about taking a global and comprehensive approach to the care for children with medical complexity. So coming at this from the perspective of a generalist, I in my personal opinion, really feel is the ideal vantage point because that allows you to not be boxed into any one particular area, but really take this comprehensive approach. So in this population of patients, simple illnesses are rarely simple. Maintaining a baseline in these children is a pretty delicate balance. So when I'm talking with patients and their families, when I'm talking with trainees, I often liken this to keeping a canoe balanced, a very delicate balance. And it's pretty easy to upset this canoe. And then you wind up all wet. Um, And so I really think about when children present with these symptoms, I, I find it really, really important to ask not only about these symptoms, but to ask about how these symptoms are impacting all of their other organ systems. How is this impacting their functioning overall? So as I kind of alluded to before, complex care providers can see f- patients in a variety of different settings. So We didn't make it clear in this case, and I actually think that's a good thing, what exactly the setting here is other than it's an office setting. So sometimes the setting of complex care may be in the primary care space, right? And so we think about that as this patient-centered medical home model. And there's a lot of advantages to a model like that in the sense that it does provide this medical home and this sort of one-stop shopping for patients and families. Sometimes complex care can be delivered in an outpatient consultative space as well. And in that case, the complex care physician is supporting not only the patient and family, but all of the specialty providers on the care team, as well as the primary care practice in facilitating communication, in helping to keep everyone on the same page in the care of these children. And there's not one right way to do that. It's really important to recognize that different patients and families have different needs. And so it's really helpful to have different models to meet the different needs of these patients. And then some complex care programs have an inpatient arm and some may actually only exist in the inpatient setting. So in the inpatient setting, they may be a primary complex care service or they may be a consultative complex care service. I will say that we're pretty fortunate 
um, at CHOP that we do have all of these models in place. We have primary care, patient-centered medical home models with complex care expertise. We have our consultative ambulatory complex care. We have inpatient consultative complex care, and we have inpatient primary complex care teams. And that's by design so that we can try to meet the needs of these patients wherever they are encountering care in our system. I love that analogy. I feel like that is going to go into our infographic and show notes. So you mentioned all these different models, including the patient-centered medical home. So can you give us an idea of what members of the multidisciplinary team may come from, like what specialties or other services are involved in the care of these patients? So when you're talking about the care team for children with medical complexity, it's important to think about different aspects of the team. So on the one hand, you have the complex care team, right? And this is truly a multidisciplinary team. So it's going to be comprised of physicians, advanced practice providers, nurses, social work. Often you'll have community health workers. You may have dietitians. You may have other administrative supports because there's so much administrative work that may be at play there. You may have therapists. You may have pharmacists. So there's a lot of different roles there that can be part of the complex care team or they could be also part of the broader care team for this patient. Um, And defining that care team is really important because that care team is inclusive of the primary care providers, the consulting providers, the therapists. And within that team, that's how you can then think about ownership and continuity around this myriad of medical problems that these patients are facing. So kind of on that note of thinking holistically about the patient and taking ownership over the patient's care. So when a patient like this presents to you in clinic, especially for an urgent visit, how do you go about approaching your history and physical and what sorts of questions do you start your interview with? So You probably recall hearing early on in your training that one of the most important pieces in speaking with a family is getting that history. So as with many instances in medicine, the history is of critical importance when you're caring for children with medical complexity. So I typically recommend starting by asking about the presenting symptoms so that you can get a full understanding of these symptoms that really brought them to you, how long they have been going on, the severity of those symptoms, etc. But then always remember to ask about the other body systems and how they are impacted. So in this case that you presented, the mother and the nurse suspected this patient may have a cold. So you're of course going to ask them about respiratory symptoms that this patient may have. And you'll also want to know how far has this patient deviated from her baseline. You will then want to know about how this has impacted her other body systems. So for example, respiratory illnesses and GI symptoms often go hand in hand. So whenever a patient presents with respiratory symptoms, I'm going to ask all about that, but you want to make sure you ask about the GI symptoms? How is their feeding tolerance? How is this impacting their reflux? How is this impacting their their bowel movements and their stooling patterns? So you can see that certain patterns will exist, that they will go hand in hand, but I'm really going to ask that about all of the other organ systems. So children with medical complexity really make you use your review of system skills as part of the HPI. Finally, though, this patient has a pretty high degree of technology dependence, so you're going to want to include questions about this technology in the history. So when a parent or a caregiver of a child with medical complexity presents to me with this concern of, I don't know, my child just isn't right, I take that very, very seriously. That actually really gets my attention in a big way because you don't want to get anchored to any one particular diagnosis, even though they may have said, I think she may have a cold, you don't really want to get anchored around URI symptoms. 
you have to consider the other etiologies that may be at play, whether it be other types of infections or some complication related to her technology, such as an issue with the shunt or with the baclofen pump. And then finally, and when I'm doing the history, I will ask the caregivers or the family whether their child has had similar symptoms to this in the past. So you mentioned this child is 14 years old. So she's had a long time um, to have had many complications over her life. And so the likelihood of having similar symptoms to this is pretty high. And so even when parents can't quite put their finger on exactly what it is that they may be concerned about, they often can recall similar times where their child may have looked this way. And they can talk to you about what was going on at that time. How is this different or how is this the same um, as before? What is it that this is making that parent think about? I just had a quick follow-up question to some of that. And it's it's fantastic, right? It sounds like we need to really do a review of systems, number one. History is always the most important. And that's where you're going to find anything. And this is going to come from the caregivers. But, you know, this girl's 14, so she probably has worked through the system. But if you were younger, you know, often patients think that their doctors know everything. Oh, they'll figure it out what's going on. Um, and I sometimes see these patients and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on with your child and I'm going to try to work through it. But how do you set expectations early for these kids? Because sometimes these kids do things that we've never seen before. I think it's really important to be honest with families that particularly with a child with medical complexity who has some degree of neurologic impairment and therefore a limited Um, ability to communicate to you that symptoms can be somewhat vague at the beginning. And so it can be hard to really sort of nail things down to exactly what's going on right away. So I really try to partner with caregivers um, and families early on and let them know that I really want their help as I am bringing my medical expertise and my experience in this population to helping to care for their child. But I really want to also leverage their experience and their observations and their knowledge of their child, because there's a lot that they are seeing that that I may not be seeing. There's a lot that they know about their children that I may not know. And so that's why asking some of those questions about sort of has this happened before can be really helpful. But I think it is really important to be transparent with families and and say that particularly if you are not familiar with this patient and maybe you're seeing them for the first time, say on behalf of a colleague in the office or something else like that, that you can go through and review the record, but it's going to be a pretty deep chart probably. And you want to partner with them as you are working to figure this out, that you're there to listen to them and what they are saying and look for those fine details. You know, one question um, have that's sort of on the opposite end of this is, you know, you're talking about with um, the patient we presented here, um, you know, a very vague-ish type presentation, but the, the caregiver of the family has had some sort of intuition on what might be going on, but you're trying to keep yourself from having anchoring. Um, I have, you know, in, in my experience, sometimes come across some of these, some of our patients, you know, some of these children have been medicalized for a long time throughout their lives. And um, obviously you have family members who want to advocate very strongly for them. And sometimes I feel sometimes families may also anchor in one thing and be very adherent to it while you're trying to say, I want to broaden our differential, make sure we don't miss anything. Do you have any advice on how to approach those types of situations? I encounter some of the same things. And when I encounter that, I try to ask the families to see if they can share with me what is it that is um, that is driving some of that concern. So what is it they are seeing that is making them concerned about that? Or what experiences did they have in the past that are behind some of that concern? And sometimes it may be that their child had some vague symptoms and it took a while to figure out what the problem was and their child got really, really sick and that was really traumatic for them. Sometimes it may be that they're just not able to articulate what it is that they are seeing or that they're worried about in a way that clearly translates into something that we can understand. And so it helps to be able to draw them out to ask, what is, can you tell me a little bit about what is it that you are worried about? 
And if they say, I'm really, really worried about the shunt, I'm really, really worried about the trach or, or whatever it may be, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Just keep asking those follow-up, those follow-up questions to try to get at some of what is driving some of some of that concern. Um, because also it makes it really clear how invested you are in helping to solve this problem with them. Chris, that was a great question. I um, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, this happens a lot. You know, they're like, my last time this happened, my kid, you know, was in the ICU for seven days and like, we need to get a chest x-ray and a urine and we need to do every single thing now. How are we going to, you know, you know, how are we not going to do this? And so trying to balance that. And I think, as you said, joining them and siding with them being like, all right, you tell me, you know, I'm feeling like, how are you feeling? You know, where did that come from? I understand. Oh my God. You tell me as soon as this happens, you know, as soon as they get, um, as soon as you notice some shortness of breath, just come and find me, you know, and we're going to, and we're going to go do something about it. So then they might feel a little bit, a little bit bonded in that, in that experience. Um, but yeah, Chris, I was like, yes, that happens to me all the time. So thank you for asking that. I also think it's helpful to ask families about when I'm doing the history, I will also ask them about the different members of their care team and sort of who is doing what. So who has been managing these different problems, it, particularly if I'm not um, one of the people on the care team who has a longitudinal relationship there so that I can understand who else might I want to reach out to, to get some more information to help me to figure out what is it that I don't know that may not be readily apparent um, in this, this patient's presenting right now. Awesome. So let's, um, unless Chris or Audrey, you have anything more, let's get some more information. What do you guys think? Yeah. Sounds good. So you move on to your exam and you know that Shiley is less interactive than her usual baseline. She's also febrile to 102 Fahrenheit and has moderate retractions with diminished air movement bilaterally. Her cap refilled is delayed as well. And her nurse reports that Shiley has more abundant and thicker secretions from her trach over the past two days. So there is a lot of technology and devices that Shiley has, and those can sometimes be a bit intimidating, especially for those of us who are less familiar with them. So how do you approach gathering key information about these devices and I was just wondering if we could kind of talk through them one at a time. Sure. Starting with the VP shunt. The easy one, right? The shunt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's always the shunt. It's never the shunt. All right, go for it. Right. Sorry about it. <laughs> it's hard to resist, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to resist the discussion of, is it the shunt? It's yeah. never the shunt, except when it's the shunt. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, in any patient who has a shunt, um, I always start out by um, asking and verifying what kind of shunt do they have? So do they have a VP shunt, which is obviously the common type that we would think about, um, but Sometimes we may just say VP shunt the way that we refer to a tissue as a Kleenex. Um, and it's important to just be sure, do they actually have a VP shunt or do they have a VA shunt? What kind of shunt do they have, right? So I like to make sure I know that. And then you want to make sure that you know how long have they had their shunt? Um, have they ever needed a shunt revision? And if so, how long ago? That's important because um, while a shunt can have issues at any time, your higher risk period for any shunt is going to be in uh, the closer you are in proximity of time to when the shunt was placed or last revised. And so if a patient does have a history of a shunt malfunction or a shunt infection, it's helpful to ask or to look in the record to see if you can figure out what kind of symptoms they had um, the last time they had um, a shunt malfunction or a shunt infection, and whether or not this current presentation seems different or similar, and how so. So families are usually pretty um, well able to um, articulate some of those differences or similarities. Um, and if they are worried about the shunt, they're usually able to indicate to you sort of what is it about this that's driving that worry. And what do you most commonly see that's the thing that's saying like, hey, my kid's completely lethargic or my kid's vomiting or my kid is just, what do you generally see as the most common? Because some of us are going to be the first people seeing the shunt problem. 
Yeah. So um, the symptoms can be pretty vague. So sometimes it may be increased seizure activity. Sometimes it can be a change in mental status. As you know, you'll often hear, you're not typically going to tend to see that that traditional Cushing's triad until you're pretty late in the um, in the process. And sometimes those symptoms may not all actually happen at the same time. And so you can't rely upon just seeing that. Um, I will say with any of these uh, pieces of technology, having an index of suspicion is really important. So we lean on our consulting colleagues um, to help us um, to sort out how concerned we should be, but really, we are responsible for our judgment and for having that index of suspicion. And while we joke about it, I think any of us who have been in practice for any length of time have had the experience of being told it's not the shunt. It's not the shunt until it was the shunt. And so this is one of those things where while it is not necessarily a high likelihood, it's a high risk. And so whenever there's a high risk, we always have to have a high index of suspicion. So I do think about the shunt a lot. With those kids with, with EP shunts and, and we're, are we are we reaching out to our consultant first? Are we doing like a shunt series? Are we doing both at the same time? Like what what type of uh, what type of approach are we doing here? So it depends a bit on the setting in which you are seeing them, right? So if you are seeing a patient in an outpatient primary care clinic, your ability to intervene on any concerns regarding their shunt is going to be pretty limited, right? Um, And so if you truly have concerns about the shunt, you are going to need to transition them into um, a setting that can actually do some of those investigations, right? So that's going to be going into an acute care scenario. It's also important to recognize that the shunt can have different ways that it's going to malfunction. So doing a shunt series can be helpful to be able to evaluate the tubing that's going to be there. But at the end of the day, it gets down to how that shunt is actually functioning to alleviate pressure within the brain. And so you can have a normal shunt series, right? But you can have an increase in ICP. And so having a normal shunt series is not going to completely relieve my suspicions if I have clinical symptoms that I'm truly worried about, um, about whether or not this shunt is functioning the way I need it to, to care for my patient. Um, And that really may direct me towards having to get head imaging. But again, if I'm really worried about that, I'm going to make sure this patient is being seen in an acute care setting. Awesome. Maybe maybe we'll jump to the... um to the pulmonary system and talk sure. about the, uh, the tracheostomy, the, uh, the, the ventilator, airway clearance, you know, that type of thing. What are the questions you think we should be gathering for these type of devices? All right. So in a child with respiratory technology dependence, it's really important to make sure that you have a good understanding of this patient's baseline. So if they have a ventilator what are their baseline settings? If they have an airway clearance regimen, what is their baseline airway clearance regimen? And what is their baseline respiratory status and respiratory exam? That's going to be really important so that you can know how far are they with their current presentation from their baseline. So I mentioned their settings. You'll want to ask about their baseline suctioning needs um, and with their clearance regimen, what kind of technology that they are using there. So most patients with this level of respiratory technology dependence that we see in this case, they will already have a contingency plan in place for increasing airway clearance in the um, in the case of acute illness or in a case of, of a change in their respiratory status. So you'll want to find out, have they already initiated their increased clearance, clearance regimen? So for example, their baseline clearance regimen may include a cough assist device, um, chest PT, something like that, um, and suctioning done two, three, four times a day. But they may have an increased airway clearance regimen that goes up to every four hours, sometimes every two hours. And you'll want to know, have they already initiated that contingency plan? And if so, how long ago did did they initiate that? And how did the patient respond to that increased, um, you know, escalation in care? So, 
for children with poor airway clearance, and this is with or without a tracheostomy in place, you'll want to ask about the nature of the secretions and how they have changed. So what's their baseline coloring consistency and what have you seen change with that? Because that's going to help you to get a little bit more information about what may be going on here. And then I mentioned this earlier, and this applies to all technology, but Um, It's important to know who is the member of the care team that is helping to manage this technology, who has put this plan into place, have they already been in contact with that care team member. So in this case, it's likely going to be a pulmonologist. Um, Sometimes it may be an an intensivist because some um, pediatric critical care physicians actually follow patients longitudinally. But you'll want to know sort of who is the team that's helping to manage this technology and this chronic medical issue with this patient? Have they already been in touch with them? Um, And, you know, so on and so forth. Um, that's also going to help you to know who's your partner in caring for this patient, whether you're seeing them in the office or if you're seeing them in the emergency room, who you're going to be um, reaching out to um, and in a patient like this with the symptoms that you are presenting, this is most likely escalating beyond that which can be uh, adequately cared for in the outpatient setting. And so this is going to help you to, um, to get there Um, advice and involvement in an escalation plan for this patient. Yeah, I think it's hard to, um, to troubleshoot some of these issues. And we'll get into what steps we're going to do in the office in a second. But to troubleshoot some of these issues, depending on your knowledge of some subspecialty medicine, which is okay to know none of it, and it's okay to know some of it, you know, to say, oh, hey, I think you have an obstruction in the trach portion. I can just pop out this uh, this trach and put a new one in, and we're good to go. You know, you have to understand, you know, what's going on with the ventilator, what looks like obstructive on a ventilator. You know, you know what's giving you these symptoms, what you see in a trach. And some, I, you know, I may have been comfortable with that two years ago, and now I'm not comfortable this year, or vice versa. You know, so um, so all that to say is. What's the expectation we feel comfortable with some of these things? And what would you like us to learn? Do you want us to learn some of these things? And can you teach us some of these things? Or or, um, or should we be, as you said, we're the multidisciplinary team and we're the quarterback, so we should also be reaching out to some of the subspecialists? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that as the complex care pediatrician, you can't replace every other specialty that's on the team right? You're going to have experience, you're going to have expertise with these patients, with this technology, with these conditions. But some people who are going to complex care actually are pulmonologists by their training. They're going to bring a very different skill set to this than someone who is coming into this from a general pediatrics background, right? And that's okay. And that's appropriate. This is a team sport, you are really coming at this with this is your level of expertise here and who are your resources that you're tapping into. The emergency room physician who is caring for this patient, they are not replacing the pulmonologist either. They're going to know how to respond in an emergency to make sure they've got a patent airway, that they're keeping this patient breathing and maintaining circulation, but then they're going to know how to phone a friend and tap into these resources. And I think it's just really important to not be intimidated by this thought that you have to be able to replace the pulmonologist and replace the gastroenterologist and replace the ENT surgeon. Who can do all of that? You can't replace the neurologist and all of these things. You're going to partner with them. I wanted to kind of jump off that point, thinking back to the basics. We talked about history and physical, but As we've been going along, I've been trying to think through a framework in my mind of how to approach this. And I was just curious if you use a particular framework, whether it be systems-based and how you fit the technology in your approach to coming up with a differential. I tend to be systems-based in the way that I think. I do that more so that I try to avoid anchoring on any one particular diagnosis or any one particular etiology. I also try to think about what are the things that are urgent or emergent that I have to make sure that we are addressing first. So it really gets back to you get to the ABCs first. And this patient, the symptoms that you presented are really raising my concern about the degree of urgency of how to approach this. So I'm going to start out with 
a global approach of making sure that I'm looking at the ABCs here and I have worries about this patient because you've already indicated that this patient is not at their respiratory baseline. They're working harder to breathe. They're having increased secretions. Their cap refill is not as good. So I'm worried about what their perfusion is going to be. Um, there's, there's some things here where I'm going to start out by saying, how do I act urgently so that I don't miss something, and then I'm going to I'm going to approach this systematically. Does that make sense? I like I like that a lot because I think that takes away some of the intimidation and in thinking about the underlying complexity of this patient with first looking at the big picture of, you know, what are the main urgent matters that I need to address first and then drilling deeper into the specific underlying cause. And so I think that's, that's great to, to point that out. So we talked about the VP shunt, the trach vent airway. We've hit, we've, we were, as you can see, we're going from the top down. Um, although I don't know, you know, if we talk about our canoe, I don't know how I can put this in the canoe, but we're saying we're going to talk from the bow all the way to the, uh, to the stern, if I'm using my, uh, my pieces, right. Um, so sure. next up is the, thank you. Thank you. Um, next up is the GI system. So next piece of technology is the G tube. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think we should be asking about the G tube in this situation? So we already talked about the importance of asking about feeding tolerance and other GI symptoms. When you're thinking about the enteral feeding tube, I always like to start with making sure that we know what kind of tube are we dealing with. So we've already stated that it's a gastrostomy tube, and in a patient of this age, it's most likely to be you know, a transabdominal gastrostomy tube as opposed to an NG tube. But I never assume. I always ask, what kind of tube am I dealing with? So is it an NG tube? Is it a a gastrostomy button? So a low profile G tube? Or is it a standard gastrostomy? Is it a GJ tube? Or is it a J tube? So um, I always want to know what kind of tube I am dealing with. Um, first. Some patients just have a G-tube. Some patients, if they need post-pyloric feeding, they may have a separate G and a J-tube, or they may have a GJ. So I'd like to know what kind of technology I'm dealing with first. And then I want to assess the site. Um, So it's important to know there, is there any issues with skin irritation, leakage, skin breakdown, signs of infection, or any issues with how the tube itself is functioning. So that in this patient seems to be a little bit less of a concern with what's been presented so far, but it is really important to know that our source of enteral access is clear and stable. This patient has a gastrostomy tube, so we know we have a way to be able to administer at least enteral um, fluids to this patient. I do, when a patient is looking this ill, want to know if they are on their feeds um, or not. Again, I asked how they were tolerating their feeds and keeping them down, and um, when was the last time they had their feeds too. Is there anything specific in each of those tubes that we should know about right off the bat? So you ask, you know, say, hey, is it a Mickey button? Hey, is it a GJ? Can you um, just give us the highlights the same way we were talking about the shunt about anything that we should be like, let's let's ask this question because it's a J tube, for example. Yeah. So if someone has a G tube, they're feeding into their stomach. And so if um, if they have any feeding intolerance, if they are vomiting and they're having some respiratory symptoms, you'll want to know whether or not they have a fundoplication or not. And that's going to give you some sense about what their risk may be of aspiration from below for whatever is in their stomach. If they are feeding post-pylorically, it's helpful that their the contents of their stomach are going to be um, a much less, right? And we have a lower degree of concern about their aspiration of their feeds because they are past the stomach. It doesn't mean they couldn't be aspirating other gastric contents, um, but you want to also find out if they've been getting their medications as well, because many patients, if they have a GJ tube, they may get their feeds through the J, but their meds through the G. So you want to know sort of what they are getting where. So I could give an entire talk, which I do, on the different types of feeding tubes and managing all those complications, which is probably beyond the scope of what uh, we're talking about here. But uh, yeah, it's it's important to sort of know the technology you're dealing with there. I feel like we need a part two on this episode after we're done. <laughs> part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and we can keep going <laughs> depending, on number, yeah. and depending on the devices that we have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, but Audrey, do you want to take us to the next one? Sure. So... Uh, 
The next will be regarding the chronic intermittent cath and what sorts of questions you would ask about that. Sure. So for a child who is getting clean intermittent catheterization, you want to know the baseline frequency of catheterization. That's helpful to know and what kind of output they have been getting. This is going to give you a sense of what that patient's hydration status is like. And you can also ask about any changes to their urine, whether it be the the um, the color, the consistency, cloudiness, um, etc. It's also really important to recognize that clean intermittent cathing is just that. It's clean, but it's not sterile. So these patients often start on a CIC regimen because they have urinary retention and a risk of UTI so as to avoid urinary stasis. But by virtue of getting clean intermittent cathing, they may be at risk of um, bacterial colonization of their urine. So um, you want to keep UTI on your differential, but for a patient who is getting clean intermittent cathing, you want to make sure that you can get a UA, but also get a culture because that colony count is going to be really important in distinguishing between colonization versus infection. The last piece of technology that we want to discuss is the baclofen pump. So for a child with a baclofen pump, um, it's important to think about malfunctioning not only of the pump, but also of the catheter tubing as well. So when we think about interrogating a baclofen pump, it's not just about the pump itself, but you have to bear in mind what you can do to assess the, the catheter. So this is particularly important because baclofen withdrawal can be extremely dangerous, and the presenting symptoms of baclofen withdrawal can actually mimic acute infectious illness, including fever, tachycardia, hyper or hypotension, seizures, change of mental status, et cetera. Um, So that's an important thing to keep on the differential diagnosis. All right. So just coming back to our case real fast from the beginning. So we've talked about Shiley. So she's 14, has, you know, 25 week gestational age infant. She has trach. She's got a uh, VP shunt. She got G tube. She got a, um, a bladder cath, baclofen pump. She's coming and not acting like herself. Um, mom or caregiver think that she might have a cold. But on the other hand, you just had an exam that had a febrile patient, moderate retractions, some cat refill delay. You know, we've gone through all of the questions that you want to ask. We've gone through all of the systems and how we're going to kind of approach it. So my big question to you is what are we going to do next? So when you have a patient like this that is presenting to your office, for the most part, these patients are going to be calling in to the office first. And it's important to have protocols in place for your children with medical complexity to be able to ask some of these triaging questions to help to figure out for this family and for this patient's safety where you're going to best be able to take care of this patient. So potentially when this family was calling in to the office, this patient may have looked very different than how they are looking to you now, which may have made it so that it was appropriate to come into the office. But based upon what you're seeing here, you've taken a detailed history, you've got these vital signs, you have your exam findings, this patient is going to need an escalation of her care. And so you are going to need to get this patient to an acute care setting. So getting this patient to the emergency room, because it really does look like this patient is going to need to be admitted. And doing that in a very expedient way is going to be important. So when you are working in an ambulatory space, um, being aware of what your protocols are to be able to execute that in the office is really, really important. And then again, having a process to be able to help to triage this over the phone. I think it's also just taking one quick step back when you are setting up your practice to be able to take care of these patients and bring them into the office, it's important that you set that up that you've allowed for the time it takes to be able to see these patients, take that detailed history and do that assessment. So this is not a patient in a busy primary care practice that you can see in 15 minutes. It's really not going to be feasible to be as comprehensive as you need to be and to give this patient the care that they need and deserve in 15 minutes time. And so having the office set up so that you can give the time that it takes for these patients is important. Um, But then also 
sort of recognizing what are the vulnerabilities of this patient that are going to make it so you have to escalate their care pretty quickly. And in this case, this patient needs a higher level of care. And I have a question about your own personal experience. So this patient, for example, if we removed, say we removed all the vital sign abnormalities, you know, so they weren't, you know, so mom's concerned that she has a cold and she's not acting like herself, but we don't have any of the signs of, you know, hypoperfusion, signs of increased work of breathing. Um, you know, generally as a medical provider, you say, hey, you know, we got time for this. Um, you know, this person doesn't look that ill. So this is a day's problem, not an hour's problem. Um, but you had also mentioned that these patients are, incredibly delicately balanced canoe. Um, So where do you think, you know, just from your own experience, like how much time do you have with these kids? Do you need to get this stuff figured out right away? Should we send them to the hospital anyways? You know, um, what, you know, what, what kind of balance is that? And that might be too hard of a question to ask now based on no information, but I was just curious your thoughts. Well, sometimes this is where talking with the family can be helpful. So um, sometimes if you have caregivers that are there, and that's not always a luxury that we have, but if you have caregivers that are there that can share with you how this patient has, has responded in the past to similar symptoms like this, that will give you a sense of, of how much reserve they may have. So that if you were to see this patient and she had some mild respiratory symptoms, say some changes in her secretions, And let's say you didn't have all these vital sign abnormalities, but you had some of these early symptoms and the family said they wanted to bring her in early so they can try to get on top of that. That is where you can then partner with the family and with the members of the care team that help to manage this problem and the technology to see, is this a problem that you can handle in the ambulatory setting? Because they don't always have to go into the hospital. Thinking about that shared decision-making and coming up with a plan that best suits the patient and family, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about potential disparities in home care and nursing care for this patient population and how, as medical providers, we might best serve our patients in that respect. I'm really glad you asked about that because that is such an important piece in caring for these patients. So these children with technology dependence and medical complexity, they need care, some of them around the clock. And this exceeds the capabilities for many of these children, not all, but for many of these children of what their families on their own can provide. So there's going to be some variability here depending upon the composition of the family. How many caregivers are there in the household? How many other children or people dependent for care are there in the household? That's going to really matter here. How much care does this patient require? How many medications are they on? How frequent are the respiratory clearance regimen if this patient has a trach? So you have to have someone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, who knows how to respond in the instance of an unintentional tracheostomy dislodgement, right? That really matters. And not all families are going to have backup caregivers available to be able to do that. So there's going to be a need for other home health care. So a lot of times we think about home nursing, and I want to clarify home nursing from nursing visits. So when we talk about home shift nursing, it's also called private duty nursing. So these are nurses that are coming into the home to provide direct care for a set number of hours at a time. These children with medical complexity and technology dependence, they have such a great need for home nurses. And we know that we're dealing with a national shortage of home nurses. This is really a critical problem, and it doesn't affect all people equally. This varies by region of the country. Even in particular regions, it varies by by um, different areas within a region because this is a scarce resource. We don't have enough supply to meet the demand. And that affects patients and their ability to be able to get all the care that they need at home, which is really unfortunate. So are there any things that you recommend uh, we do as part of the medical team? Are you contacting social work? Are you contacting financial services? Are there certain places that you refer these patients to? So I think it's really important to know what your role is in the care of these children and to know your role on the team. 
you can help to advocate for the medical necessity of different services, um, but you want to make sure you are connecting these patients with a social worker to help them to get access to community community resources. This can include transportation. This can include helping them to navigate the insurance system. Um, it's really helpful to connect them with a nurse care manager or a nurse coordinator who can help them to understand their care plan, know who on their team is doing what, and help to execute the care plan. We didn't get to talk about care plans as much, but that is, that's a critical backbone of the care of these patients is having a comprehensive plan in place for these patients. And that's one of your really important contributions as the physician caring for a medically complex child is helping to create that plan and integrate the input from other members of the care team into that plan of care. And I guess a final a final question, and we can cut this out if it's actually longer than I expect. But no, we won't cut it. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> so if you're creating this complex care team, you know, just to kind of finish it up and saying, hey, I'm going to my clinic. I'm inspired by this episode, and I am going to go and say, hey, in my uh, in my hospital, I'm going to create a complex care clinic. Who do I need to set up that? Uh, who do I need to set up that clinic? Who would you recommend being on my team right away in this clinic? So I think it's important to develop an understanding of what services and resources already exist within your healthcare system, right? What is already in place now caring for these patients? And then where are the unmet needs? So do the existing resources just need some additional supports? Do they need the ability to grow to serve more patients? Or is there a gap that exists that potentially you can help to fill? That's going to help you to know where you want to, to put your efforts to be most effective. So I know that doesn't exactly answer your question, but it really is something that it's going to depend upon what's already in place in your system. These children are already there. They're experiencing our healthcare system right now. And we've got a lot of workarounds that already exist. So before you create something new, you want to start out by having an understanding of what's already in place, how is it working, and what are the remaining unmet needs. No, that's a great answer because at the end of the day, right, it's work smarter, not harder. Try to get the uh, get a, get the resources that you have to you, and then fill in the gaps that are most effective. So, no, no, I was totally respect that. And yeah, you know, we don't need to do a uh, a one through nine draft order of, uh, <laughs> of 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 who we would pick here on our on on our teams. So, thank you, but thank you very much. Yeah. You know, I want to thank you again so much for spending tonight with us. You know, I think we learned a whole bunch um, from from you. I think as we we start wrapping up, I want to ask: Do we have any other questions? Are there any other things that you want to let us let the listeners know about before we before we go? You know, as we were thinking about getting together to have this conversation, one of the questions that came up was sort of really kind of a main take home point. And I have to tell you, if people remember nothing else, um, it's really that children with medical complexity, they need a team and they need a plan. And the more we can support these children and their families in achieving transparency with their team and their plan, help them to execute the plan, the better we can serve them. Because the team is part of the overall plan of care. These patients have a lot of complex issues and each one of them needs a champion, but that patient and family need a champion as well to help them to really navigate this system, which is incredibly cumbersome, I think is a gentle and kind way of saying it. I think it's important to help to figure out what are the family's goals and their priorities and to have the humility to recognize what our role is on that team um, and our part in the plan because we can help them to achieve these goals but at the end of the day this is their journey and not ours excellent i mean i can't think of a better way to end the episode i really 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 thank you for all the time you spent with us today i think i learned a lot i think our listeners will learn a lot um, thank you so much it's my pleasure thanks for having me all right this has been another episode of the cribsiders it's for the kids 
Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Audra Innes. You know, our real hosts, not me, Justin Burke, but then our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Sam Mazur. This has been Audra Innes. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night. And for those who have stuck around to the end, I'm going to do what I always have been doing for like, what, the last, what, 10 episodes? I'm going to read a poem written by AI about our topic. This is for the, that, that, that little golden nugget for those people who have stuck around to the end. It's a long one, so I'm going to start. Upon the dawn's light in rooms filled with care, young hearts with brave might face trials most rare. Complex is the path where science meets need, yet kindness and warmth in caregivers' deeds. Monitors beeping, wires that weave tales of conditions steeping beyond life's normal scales. These children, though small, encouraged they tower. Against odds they appall, they bloom like a flower. The nurses and doctors, they labor with love for these little fighters' blessings from above. Their knowledge vast as an ocean's expanse guiding each action in the intricate dance. Technology's promise in these hallowed halls bring hope amidst worry when destiny calls. Each machine, each device lending a hand in the struggle for life they bravely stand. In these corridors bright under soft lullaby sound, a child's innocent fight makes a world round. Amid beeps and soft hums, their spirits not broken. In complex cares drums, alive stories spoken. So here's to the heroes in gowns small and tender, facing life's throes their light won't surrender. In the realm of complex care where challenges are rife, there's a testament of hope and the resilience of life. See you guys later. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.